Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 51. Today's episode is all about worthiness and losing millions. When I was a little girl, my dad had a company with 300 employees and he lost everything. And so I grew up with a dad watching him suffer in his process of trying to bounce back. So for me, as an adult, I think that there was some sort of imprint. And so as an adult, I played that out. But what I didn't work on with my belief system was also the belief that when you make a lot, you have a lot to lose. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. First, Mind Love is a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android. And for good reason, the app is awesome. Personally, it's my favorite and where I listen to all of my podcasts. You can still listen to Mind Love wherever you get your podcasts, but I hope you'll give CastBox a try. Second, don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and leave a review if you can. Reviews really help to entice more amazing guests. Plus, it helps me grow the show, which ultimately helps me give more value to you guys. Hi, friends. Did you know that 70% of people who win the lottery or come into large sums of money somehow end up broke? Crazy, right? I'm sure we'd all like to think that we would be different, but what if we're not? Listen to this excerpt from an audiobook called The Power of Ambition by Jim Rohn. He says, if someone hands you a million dollars, best you become a millionaire so you can keep the money. If you don't grow to where your income is, then guess what? Your income shrinks to where you are. Become a millionaire not for the million dollars, but for what it will make of you to achieve it. This quote is part of the reason that I've been more patient with my journey of success. It's not about making it big quick as much as it is now more of a journey of the soul for me. But I wasn't always this patient or even understanding of the process. Making money can be complicated, especially if you're trying to do it authentically. But want to know the biggest thing that gets in our own way? Our own mindset about money. And even more so, our belief systems about what we're truly worth. Today we're talking to Ashley Stahl. Ashley is one of my favorite people that I've met this year, and she's actually friends with Sarah Ann Stewart from episode 37 as well. Well, a couple years ago, Ashley really thought that she had made it. She didn't have to worry about money anymore. She achieved the American dream. Actually, I think the American dream has evolved a little. I want to classify this one as the new millennial American dream, but whatever it is, she achieved it. She managed to create something online that helped hundreds of thousands of people and made her millions of dollars doing it. She had a journey getting there, which we'll get into in the interview, but basically she found something she was good at 
and passionate about, and she took it and ran with it. By her late 20s, she had managed to make over $5 million in just a few months selling an online course. Can you imagine that feeling? Raking in thousands of dollars, sometimes an hour, while at the gym or having lunch with friends. Can you imagine the level of security, the level of accomplishment? Well, then she lost it all. And then some. She actually went into debt. Now imagine that feeling. She could rack her brain over the whole experience and realize, yeah, there might have been some business mistakes, but what it really came down to was her own feeling of worthiness and what she felt she deserved. Today, three key things we will learn are how our beliefs keep us from success, how to accelerate our growth with an open mind, and an exercise to improve our money mindsets. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the best way to stay in your highest frequency between episodes. Thousands of listeners are loving my daily morning mind love emails. They're short daily reminders of your own beauty, magic, and power so you can start each day with your best mindset. Just go to mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. First, you'll get a really cool free booklet of powerless based on proven methods from the most successful people in the world to automate your highest decisions. Plus, you'll get a free guided affirmation meditation. It's set with a binaural frequency known as the miracle tone, which is known to make you a magnet for love, health, and abundance. Then it's layered with affirmations to perfectly tune your frequency for transformation. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 444-999. That's morning to 444-999. And now let's welcome Ashley Stahl to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So let's start with your backstory. How did you go from an executive government job to making millions career coaching all in your early 20s? I feel like a lot of people go to college and they don't know what they want to do with their life. And I certainly was one of those people, but I had some ideas on what I was interested in. And what I didn't know at the time was that there's a big difference between an interest, a passion, and a calling. And I had an interest in government and cultures and in travel. So I ended up committing to a major in government and just triple majored in government history and French. And next thing I knew, I ended up getting a master's in foreign relations, learning foreign languages. And then like so many different millennials, I ran off the cliff of my job hunt into the recession. And I couldn't get a job to save my life when I finished grad school, slept on my parents' couch for a few months too long, and eventually got cornered into taking what I could get. And I just had this belief like, this is it. I just need to take what I could get. So I took an admin job making minimum wage in Los Angeles, kind of wondering, am I ever going to use my foreign relations experience and my master's degree in DC. And after a few months in my admin job, I was struggling to really feel connected to anything. And I started to wonder if this was going to be my new normal. And I think that's one of the scariest feelings for so many people is if they don't like where they are, but they don't know what to do next. Because I think if you don't like where you are, that's okay. Just make a change. But I had no idea what I was going to do next. And so I had this intuition that I could contact my college and ask them for a list of all the alumni who had graduated. 
And so they had emailed me a list of 2000 names of grads who'd moved to Washington, D.C. And as you can imagine, the nature of a government job lends itself to privacy. I had phone numbers of people who probably went on to join the CIA or God knows what. And here I am calling these people saying, hey, my name is Ashley. I'm an alumni. Would you be interested in helping me? I'm just trying to figure out how to move to D.C. and land a new job. You know, I'm 23 years old. And of course, I got a lot of people hung up on me. But then I also got a lot of people who wanted to help me. And so after about four months of taking Arabic classes at UCLA at night, going to my admin job during the day and making phone calls on my lunch break to people in D.C., I started to get enough traction where I quit my job and moved to D.C. with no money in my bank account. And I ended up landing a position running a program for the Pentagon. So I literally went from an admin assistant making minimum wage to running a program for the Pentagon in a management role. I'd replaced a colonel. I tripled my salary. I had three job offers that I leveraged all against themselves so I could get a better salary. And I literally couldn't believe that in six weeks, this was the difference in my life. I so enjoyed helping so many people at the Pentagon. But what I really missed was job hunting, like the thrill of the pursuit. And so I started inviting friends over to Starbucks on the weekends where I would help them in their job search. And in that process, they always said to me, you should be a career coach. And I was like, that's crazy. Like the only type of coach I've ever heard of is a hockey coach or like a sports coach. Like what does somebody do? Cheer on the sidelines of your career, you know? And next thing I knew, I ended up doing these little coffee groups. People brought friends, friends of friends. It was totally free. It wasn't something I saw as a business. And eventually I got kicked out of Starbucks. Too many people were coming. And that was what lent itself to me launching my career coaching practice. That's incredible. How did it feel being the youngest one in the room in such a powerful position? I feel like you must have had imposter syndrome running all through your head. Or am I just projecting? Yeah. Well, I think that that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that CEOs that are in their 50s, 60s, or 70s, they all feel like a two-year-old somewhere in their career. They all feel, or maybe a five-year-old, like embarrassed, uncomfortable, not sure if they're qualified or good enough, that unease that I think so many people don't talk about. There have been so many leaders that I've coached since, whether it's on helping them figure out their purpose in the world, helping them launch a business, or even helping them job hunt after years and years in a career, because I've helped people who are young and people who are really seasoned. And what I found is that everybody pretty much has some level of fraud or some level of not feeling like they're qualified for whatever it is that they're doing. And so for me, um, I really used that discomfort. It, one of my things I used to say to people at the Pentagon was throw up and show up. Like there were some meetings that I would literally go throw up and then I would go into the meeting because my, my body was just in such a panic over the meeting. I was listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast years ago, and it was an episode with Ariana Huffington. And she said that she still experiences imposter syndrome. According to research, 70% of people deal with it. So everyone's just walking around feeling like they don't belong, which is kind of sad. But it does make sense, especially if you're the type of person who's always trying to improve. Sometimes for me, I'm putting so much focus on the things that I want to become or the person that I want to be, that it's hard not to see all of the ways that I'm not quite there yet. So I think there's definitely a balance in seeing where you can improve having gratitude for what's already good, and then acknowledging or celebrating your progress as you go. And I think that really one of the biggest misunderstandings that everybody has is around clarity, because I think that we need to stop looking outside of ourselves for clarity and start turning inwards towards ourselves to make the U-turns that we want to make and the shifts we want to make in our career. Because to me, 
you don't need to find clarity. You need to connect to yourself. And there are so many veils that we wear and misbeliefs and misunderstandings about who we are that are keeping us from all of the information that we already know. I can't tell you how many people have come to me anyone from Olympic athletes to celebrities to your everyday admin assistant or marketing manager. And what I found time and time again is they already know what they want to do with their lives, but they have so many layers of beliefs that have hardened them like a lacquer around what they know and limited them from really seeing who they are and what's possible. And maybe the beliefs are they can't make money doing that, or they're not qualified enough for that, or maybe they're in scarcity. Maybe they believe that there's only certain people that are able to do that and they're not one of them. Whatever someone is believing, usually it's standing between them and the life that they actually already know that they want. It's funny because it's easy for me to identify my limiting beliefs now, but I've also been working on awareness for quite a while. When I first started, I didn't have a relationship with myself yet. I was so used to numbing instead of having to confront my demons or, God forbid, feel my feelings, that I didn't know how to listen. So listening to my body or listening to my intuition or my inner knowing was impossible because I couldn't tell that from all of the other streams of thought in my head. Our minds can be chaotic. They need taming, which is why we have to build awareness and develop mindfulness. They don't just come naturally. And that's why we learn all of these tools and techniques. But when I first started looking inward, I was like, oh my God, it's a shit show in here. I'm turning back. (laughs) You know what I mean? Definitely. Oh my gosh. I so get you. And I think that it really just depends on what you're committed to in life and to commit to the truth. The truth hurts and people say it will set you free. But the thing about it is that a lot of times people have anxiety and it's because they're pushing down what they know, almost like they're pushing down a beach ball under the ocean. You know, it's like it's exhausting. Resistance takes a lot of energy. It's a lot of subconscious energy that people don't even realize they're using. They're wafting off of them. For me, I'm committed to truth and I want to live a life that is in the truth because the only thing worse to me is having to push a beach ball down under the ocean all the time with my emotions, with my feelings. But what that also means is being willing to face what's real. And a lot of the times, if I ask anybody and for your listeners right now, if I could ask them, what do you know that you wish you didn't know? What do you know that you wish you didn't know? Because a lot of people listening right now, they probably know some sort of nugget of wisdom or truth inside of them. And it's gnawing at them and they keep pushing it down because it's inconvenient. It's going to unravel their lives. Maybe somebody listening right now knows they should be getting a divorce. Maybe somebody listening right now knows that they need to drop out of their PhD program and eat the $100,000 they've already lost. Maybe somebody knows that they are not straight and they're dating the wrong partners or that they need to break up with somebody. There's so many things that our own divine wisdom and intelligence knows. And we create so much more suffering for ourselves and so much more anxiety when we're not listening to the truth. And here's the deal. Either you're in anxiety because you're avoiding the truth or potentially you're in pain because you're facing the truth. So maybe there's pain in the truth, but there's very rarely anxiety in it as well. We don't always love the truth. Sometimes it's painful, especially when we ask ourselves that question and the answers make us feel like we made a bad investment or we feel like we have to start from zero. I was just watching a video with Marianne Williamson and she was talking about how our biggest lessons in life come with emotional pain. I might be sad that I got dumped, but I'm in pain because 
I know I did something that made it more likely. I'm not in pain that I lost my job as much as I am that I think I might have deserved it. But the only way to make sure we'll do better next time is to be brutally honest with ourselves now. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I imagine you had to face a lot of these painful truths in the last few years. You were running a multi-million dollar business in your late 20s, and then you lost everything. What happened? Okay, well, basically what happened was after I left the Pentagon, I came back to LA. I managed a global intelligence team for a Fortune 100 company that had staff all over the world. And during the night, I hired my first coach, which was the best and biggest investment of my life at that time. I'd spent $10,000 on her. And so for me, I sold my car to be able to pay her and started to work on my coaching practice. And as soon as I got full with my one-on-ones, I started to look at everybody doing e-courses. And that was when I started doing a webinar. And 
the webinar had required so much more than I ever thought. I thought I could create a webinar and it would be set it and forget it. I would spray a bunch of traffic at it. People would buy my product, my job hunting course. And oh my gosh, was I so wrong. The business of webinars and selling courses online is all about tweaking, testing, and trying. And you, if you don't go into it with the mindset that the first thing you put out there is going to be a calibration, you're in for a really rough ride. And so I went into it and I did the same webinar performance 91 times. And at the end of the webinar, I would sell my job hunting course. And the way that these things work in e-course land is when you have something that converts, you blow it up. So basically, once you get a conversion rate where you spend X amount on advertising and it creates X amount on sales, you just up the volume. And so I had that amazing day happen for me in early, early 2016 in the new year in January, where I did a live webinar and it was a thousand dollar course. And I'll never forget 40 people bought the course and I spent $5,000 on ads. So in an hour, I made $40,000. And I remember thinking there's no way that this is going to happen next week, that this was a fluke. And so the next week it happened again. 40 people bought, spent $5,000. So now in two weeks, in two hours, I made $80,000 off of $10,000 on advertising. And then I automated it and it became anywhere between twenty dollars and $50,000 in revenue every single day. And that lasted for about three months. So it put us into the millions in revenue. I was like, there's no way that I can have this something this profitable. I need to get lawyers to take a look at this. This feels weird, especially coming from the justice system, you know, like I believe in doing the right thing. So I brought lawyers in. It took them about a month to go through all my materials. They circled back and they had some things that they recommended that I change. And so I wanted to just make it as perfect as possible. But you can imagine, I did the webinar 91 times for it to be this profitable. So it's not the kind of thing where you just fix and it works. So I spent about three to six months iterating on the presentation, started giving it again. And by the time I got back onto Facebook ads, lead costs had tripled on Facebook and I could no longer afford to advertise there. Oh my gosh, that would be so hard. Outside of the logistics, what was happening on a personal level? Because that's a pretty big transition to move into and then have to back out of. After I made my millions and then lost millions, it was such an interesting experience because it kind of got me in the hip crowd of people who were performing in business. It was like I suddenly went from the struggling entrepreneur to the thriving entrepreneur. And I kind of looked around, started to build my network and people started to take me more seriously in business groups because I would say, hey, this is what I have going on. Would love to connect and learn more about your business. And it gave me this level of credibility that I was profiting and doing really well on the internet. And it wasn't until I lost all of my money and made some bad business decisions and almost lost my house, almost lost my car because I had American Express calling me after I made $5 million of revenue and then lost $5.4 million in revenue that I had American Express calling me saying, hey, we have to take your house and possess it so that we can pay off your debts for us. You owe us, you're beholden to us of these debts. And I rose into the occasion. I was able to earn my way out of debt. But what I was also able to see was all the beliefs I had of, are my friends going to leave me? Because these women are all seven and eight figure entrepreneurs. Are, is our friendship based on the fact that we're all successful and we all look really fancy and we can all afford these special vacations? And it wasn't until I endured that kind of loss that I was able to see what real friendship is. I was able to see who I was willing to talk to about what I was going through, and then also how they would receive me. And that was probably one of the best lessons that I've ever had. I know that you believe, like me, that our underlying beliefs create our realities. So why do you think that happened? 
what was the underlying belief that led to that loss? Oh my gosh, what an amazing question. No wonder you're just crushing it on this show. <laughs> For some reason, I have this like white hot desire to succeed. There was It was like my soul wanted to know what wealth felt like because when I was a little girl, my dad had a company with 300 employees and he lost everything. We lost our home. We had to move. We had to start our lives over. And so I grew up with a dad watching him trying to bounce back and watching him suffer in his process of trying to bounce back. So for me, as an adult, I think that there was some sort of imprint of this being the experience of wealth. And so on one hand, watching my dad as a little girl, I remember telling myself as a little kid, like seven years old saying, one day I'm going to be rich and I'm going to solve everything for everyone. I'm going to pay for everyone. Like nobody needs to be stressed out anymore. And so as an adult, I played that out. But what I didn't work on with my belief system was also the belief that when you make a lot, you have a lot to lose. And that was something that was so deeply wired in me is a lot of money is a lot of responsibility and a lot of responsibility is a lot of room for error and a lot of room for loss. And so that was pretty much what I played out. It was almost like I had an upper limit, like Gay Hendricks talks about in the book, Big Leap. It was like an upper limit problem. Like there's no way that it could be this good and that I could be this great and that I could have a course that I love and people that I want to help and that I'm going to make a lot of money doing it. There's no way that that's possible. And at that point, I think the part of me that is afraid of loss, which is so interesting when you really look at it, the part of me that's afraid of loss got a bunch of lawyers because I thought, oh my gosh, there's no way this can't keep up. Having gone through all that and knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have done differently? I think somewhere in between, if I'm being completely candid, I think I would have let myself have the gift of success, financial success. And what that would have looked like, I probably would have let it run. I could go back maybe a few more months and built more of an audience because I had the best intentions. And I still think the Job Offer Academy methodology is an incredible course. I really believed in it. And because I think there's a lot of people who are great at marketing, but then when it comes to fulfilling on what they market, it's not so great. And I feel like I really fulfilled on creating a good course. So looking back, I think I would have pumped it harder. And then I think I would have just kept my profits and turned everything off. And being the ultimate job seeker, I'd eventually let go of my team. So I remember coming into the office one day and saying, hey guys, do you want the good news or the bad news? They're like, we want the good news. And I was like, the good news is I found you a new job. And they were like, what? <laughs> so there was the bad news too. And given that I have job hunting skills, I literally job hunted for all of my staff. I had 10 people working full time. And I was happy to let everyone go in the sense where I realize I'm not the type of entrepreneur that wants to have a big team. I like to have a small team. I like to run lean. And because of the nature of having 150,000 new subscribers a month because of this funnel, the nature of having so many customers to serve and so many career coaches as employees serving these customers, it got to a place where I was like, this is a really big monster and it doesn't feel fun for me. I like to be a small shop um, because the more people who work on my team, the more people there are to manage. And I don't see myself as a manager. I see myself as a creator. Oh, that must have been so hard. One of the startups I worked for was going through a really big financial struggle. And one of the things that stressed out the CEO the most was just knowing that people's lives depended on his success. So I can only imagine how hard it must have been for you, especially being so young. Mm -hmm. How did you handle it? Well, first I crumbled, like it was just ultimate terror. It's a real blessing in retrospect because there's so many of us and anyone listening right now, if you could think, if you're listening to this, what is your worst nightmare? Like, what is the thing that you don't want to happen? 
for a lot of people, maybe it's death or losing a loved one or losing all their money. I think that a lot of people probably don't realize their biggest fear is losing all their money. When you really experience your worst nightmare, and in my case, because my dad lost all his money as a kid, it wasn't about losing all the money. It was that he was so stressed out and not present that with the money, I lost my dad. My dad was totally gone when he lost his money. And even just talking to you now about it, like I still feel like the heartbreak of that because I picture young me and she wanted her dad. And he was too busy having a panic attack about his bank account to really land into a level of presence with me. And so I think when it comes to who did I have to be or what did I step into? First, I stepped into being in my worst nightmare. I was in panic. Every month, the numbers were going down. The profits were going down. It cost me one to $300,000 a month on Facebook ads. It cost me fifty dollars to $100,000 a month to support my team and my employees. And then there was our profits every single month. So the experience was me having panic attacks and crying in my living room, not knowing who to call other than my best friend from high school and one of my closest friends in LA because I wasn't yet ready to show my boss babe friends that I was not going to be keeping up with them anymore. So it was like my old school friends since I was 10 years old who really don't give a shit who I, how much money I have that I called. And it was just one of those experiences where the more I faced my worst nightmare And I encourage anybody listening right now, if they are in their worst nightmare, if it's around the corner, if your worst nightmare is having a divorce and you feel like you and your husband or you and your wife are all around the corner from that, the more you let yourself face it, eventually what happens is you feel so much pain that you literally cry all of your pain out and there's literally no pain left. And that was where I got. And now I'm literally set the hell free. At this point, I swear to God, Melissa, take away my money, take away my house, take away my fancy car in the driveway. I don't need it. I'm not attached to it. And it's not going to send me into a spiral ever again. And I really stand by that because my body already has felt that experience and it's not afraid of it anymore. It's not the unknown anymore. Back in episode 33, which was all about anxiety, Ashley James talks about how our brains literally go from oh my gosh, I'm failing at this, to I'm going to lose everything, to I'll be homeless, to I'll be dead, all in an instant. And that's what causes our anxiety because it's on this subconscious level, which means we can't really solve it. And for most of us, none of these scenarios are even the case. We'll figure something out. We can move in with someone, even if it's our mom, or we can get another job. Tim Ferriss calls this fear setting. It's focusing on the worst case scenario. And as someone who's all about focusing on the positive, I know that can sound counterintuitive because why would you want to focus on the worst case scenarios? That sounds so negative. (laughs) But what happens is when you actually take those fear-based thoughts from the abyss of our brains and you write it down, you make it concrete which actually allows you to problem solve. And suddenly you realize maybe it's not life-threatening. So your fight or flight system turns off and you can actually start to see a way out of your problem. Definitely. And I think so often we are in complete autopilot and this was what inspired podcasting for me. And I know for you, it's like we all have some level of heartbreak that happens in our life and it inspires 
incredible creation. And for me, my heartbreak was losing all my money because then I was like, wow, I put all this time into creating something. And here's the truth of the matter. I really loved the course that I had, but I didn't love the marketing of the course. I didn't enjoy webinars. I didn't enjoy sales scripts. I didn't enjoy that whole experience. And it kind of called me forward to do this experience was to say, well, then who am I really? And how do I want to create next time? Because I guess if nothing's guaranteed and all you have in life is time and how you spend it. And here's the thing also is that studies indicate that the pain of loss, it hits your body a lot harder than the joy of success. And so for me, I was like, okay, these moments of joy and success are fleeting, but the hours we spend working towards these goals are not. They're hours of our lives. And so for me, it was like, how do I enjoy all of the hours of my life so that I'm not just creating something that I hate? And part of that means holding a higher standard for how I go about my creation. Oh, that's such a good realization because the trap is always looking forward to that destination of success, but it's all the journey. It never ends. So you have to figure out how to enjoy the present moment before you make the money. Otherwise, that feeling of not quite making it, that feeling of lack or not being satisfied with the present moment becomes perpetual. And even if you do make it, like from your story, you can't always expect that you're going to keep it. We don't always consider that we might work hard, make the money, and then lose it all. So I'm curious, going from your 20s, when your ego is most inflated, to a multimillionaire, and then having to start over, what did you have to detach from? How did that change your idea of who you are and what your purpose really is? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. Going from your 20s to a multimillionaire and then having to start over, how did that change your idea of who you are and what your purpose really is? I love this question because I think ultimately when I take a look at who I really am, I'm a grower like you, Melissa, and I'm so committed to growing. And so what this really shook up for me was an awareness around what my core values really are and how much purpose there is 
available when you know what that is. So I created a core values guide. This guide was the beginning of me finding so much purpose in myself. It's actually a joke that it could be on a piece of paper like it is. I think sometimes when we think of something really big and important, like our core values, we think that there's no way we can find the answer on a quick sheet of paper, but we can. So I took a look at all of these different words, connection, family, authenticity, joy, creativity, inspiration, mastery, growth. There's so many different words on that guide. And I started to figure out what mine were. And I started looking at them as the key ingredients to my career path. So from there on out, because I lost all my money, because I was starting at square one, I thought, okay, well, what are my core values? I learned that they're connection, creativity, authenticity, service, honesty. And then I took a list and I said, who's out there that inspires me in the world? Who's out there doing work that I'm really moved by? Or what was that moment of the day? And I started keeping a journal every single day that lit me up. So I wrote every day, what lit me up? And I would write anything from a conversation to a business meeting. It could be a conversation in line while I'm waiting for my cup of coffee in the morning, or it could be something more complicated, like a documentary that I thought was really fascinating. I wrote down every single day what lit me up. And then eventually I started coming up with a list of like, what do I want to do next in my career? What are people out there doing that inspires me. And I created this whole list and I started checking the ones that aligned with all five of my top five core values. I love that. Figuring out my values has been hugely helpful for me also because it basically narrows down your options of what you should be focusing on to feel the most fulfilled or even feel the most like yourself. There's actually this online survey that helped me figure out my values. I felt like I needed a little extra guidance because I can fall into that trap of seeing this huge list of all of these positive words and almost wanting to adopt all of them as my own. And so the survey goes through questions that are practical for daily life, and then it spits out your character strengths, which can also be used as your values. And anyone else can take that for free at viacharacter.org. But I'll link to both of these in the show notes at mindlove.com slash 051. So my core values are creativity, love of learning, perspective, hope, curiosity, and humor, which all of those resonates with me on such a deep level because it shouldn't be what sounds good for life, but more what are you currently living by or what's been a running theme through most of your life or even just in recent years? Mm, Yeah, because those usually don't change. But I do think what you're saying is really important because with every new belief you buy into about who you are or what life means for you, an old version of you is dying. And that is why so often people who experience incredible breakthroughs follow it with incredible grief. Because like I say, I've told a lot of clients and I used to run seminars and I would say new level, new devil. It's like once you get comfortable with where you are, there's a new devil for you to grow into. And so to me, the new devil is like, hey, maybe you grew into a new belief and it really serves you. You believe that something's possible. But now that you're the person who believes that thing is possible, you have to grieve the person who used to not think it was possible. Even in my case, when I started making real money, I grieved the person inside of me that used to be broke. I grieved that I couldn't go to my $5 wine happy hour on Fridays, or I could, but I didn't really need to anymore because back in the days when I was broke, that was the only place I could go for cocktails with my friends because I couldn't really afford spending $17 on a drink in LA. And it was almost like I had to grieve that version of myself. There were some weird things that I missed about my dive bar that I used to go to and to kind of free myself up and realize, wow, I'm now the Ashley who can afford to go to 
the nicer bar with my friends, the one that feels really beautiful to sit inside. And I used to not be able to afford that. And it's not to say that who I am has anything to do with my money, but the beliefs that I formed that created the results that looked like money in my bank account opened up new doors and caused me to have to grieve the old doors, even if they don't look as desirable. And you could take a person who has been sick their whole life. Maybe they get better and they're able to be out in the world. Maybe there's some weird part of them that grieves being sick, grieves the time where they were in their bed and they got to spend quality time with their mom or people visiting them. There's always something in our past selves that there is to be grieved. I have totally had those moments, especially as a former party girl. (laughs) There are moments that I just miss Sunday fun day and drinking rosé all day and knowing that all the responsibility lied on my boss and I could just turn off my responsibility on the weekends. But then I think, what came with that? Not really feeling like I had a purpose, feeling apathetic about my future, not to mention erratic emotions because I was sleep deprived and poisoning my body all the time. We can do that with anything, really. Take a past relationship, for example, that we've been idealizing. Chances are, if you evolved out of it, it wasn't all sunshine and lollipops to begin with. So it is important to be real with ourselves. And also to realize we are not the same person year after year. We actually have none of the same cells that we had seven years ago. Just naturally, with the way our cells regenerate, that happens with everybody. So if you're also the type of person that's on a path of rapid growth, you might feel like a completely different person in just one year from now. Some of my biggest transitions the last couple years have been friendships. If people aren't growing with you, sometimes they can almost be like anchors, like an anchor to a past life that I'm trying to let go of. And then those relationships can even be triggering. It can remind me of who I used to be or parts of myself that I'm consciously trying to reject right now. So the more I grow and the faster I grow, the harder certain relationships have been to hold on to. But in letting go of my past self or letting go of past relationships, I have made room for all of these amazing things that I'm consciously calling into my life. And now the people I attract are also people who live from this conscious place. So they're compassionate and considerate and they know how to communicate from a place of love. So it might seem scary at first and it might seem like loss at first, but in the end, you have to make room for the new. It's funny because I think people assume that wealthier friends might be more superficial But I have found that in order for successful people to get to where they are, a lot of them have had to consciously work on themselves. And so for me, some of those friendships are even stronger. So I'm curious with your experience of making millions and evolving into these high-level friendship groups and then losing everything, you mentioned that your fear was how those friendships were going to hold up. So how did that turn out? I think this is actually just a lesson on intuition because fear gets in the way. You know, we're all highly intuitive beings. And I knew in my heart that there were certain friends that I trusted would show up for me and wouldn't see me in a different light. 
And I also kind of knew who wouldn't make themselves available for me, but I was in so much fear that it blocked me. And that's how intuition works, right? Your intuition isn't clean when you're attached to an outcome. And the outcome I was attached to was keeping my friends. And so it kind of blocked me from seeing if they would step in for me or not. But pretty much every single person that in my heart I knew would really want to be there for me has been. And there were moments where they would run a seminar with a thousand people and they would be the host and sharing all their coaching and their content. And what blew my mind was that even when I was broke, they would call and say, Hey, Ashley, can you be a speaker at my seminar? And I'd be like, who am I to speak at your seminar? I just lost all of my millions of dollars. You don't want me to tell, teach anybody anything. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? You're one of the best copywriters that I know, you know, everything about it. You're just blocked right now, Ashley. You're just game. You're just man down. You're going to come back. What are you talking about? You have so much to share with these people. And for them to see my worthiness in the moments that I wasn't willing to step into it was such a powerful vehicle of being seen and remembering who I already am. What you just said was so important that your friendships were able to reflect your worth back to you. That's one of the biggest reasons it's so important to be selective about who you surround yourself with. They say you're the sum of your six closest friends, and that's because relationships are mirrors. So if you're surrounding yourself with people who don't see worth in themselves and don't feel a love for life, you're going to absorb all that. I think the key ingredient to a powerful friendship is a friend that you can set boundaries with, that you are so comfortable and so yourself that when they're excited and they look at you and say, let's go do this. And you don't want to do it. It feels like a no in your body because we're constantly feeling yeses and nos in our body. That's why I think the key to a powerful career is just to follow what feels good because your body knows what you want. And there's so much purpose on the periphery of that, whether you're on the right path or whether there's something on the periphery. In my case, the job hunting course felt good. And on the side of that was a book deal. And I've always wanted to be an author. So on the periphery was what I was meant to do. And so I think with friendships, it's following what feels good. And what's felt good for me is permission to be fully myself. And that doesn't just mean to be all of my colors and all of my flavors with what I saying, what I think it means being able to say no and push back when something doesn't feel good for me. I've had so many friends that are like, Hey, can you do this? Are you down? And it's the closest friends I have that I'm like, nah, I don't really want to do that. And they're like, okay, all good. Because when I do that, they have permission to do the same with me and it sets them free in such a profound way. My best friend, her name's Nicole Nalpavar and she's a therapist in Los Angeles. And she was telling me the other day, I am the only friend she has right now that she doesn't think after she says no. That is so good. It's already hard enough saying no, probably because I'm a people pleaser. And a lot of times there's a part of me that wants to say yes also, but I'm trying to grow beyond my old self. So that takes making different decisions than I used to. I recently actually had a friend get upset with me because she said, I only hang out with her when it fits my schedule. <laughs> but isn't that how it's supposed to be? Obviously, I would open up my calendar if it was an emergency, but otherwise planning and being diligent with my time is a big part of trying to create something successful or create something bigger than myself. And it's especially hard when you're your own boss, because if you have a corporate job and somebody asks you to hang out on a Tuesday afternoon, you just say, no, I have to work. But when you work from home, people just expect that you're going to be able to move things around. But that is a slippery slope. 
Yeah, definitely. And here's the thing in life, I found that anybody who's dating right now, for example, we talk a lot about finding the right person. And I found that life isn't so much about finding the right anything. It's about saying no to the wrong everything. And that frees your energy up. How many people do you know right now that are in a relationship that when you really look at it, they're not happy? It's the wrong relationship for them. And it's like, you don't need to go out and find the right person. Just keep saying no to things that are wrong. And it's the same with your career path. Keep leaving those jobs that don't feel good for you. Keep leaving those business ideas that don't feel fun for you. On the outside, I look like a scattered person because I have so many interests. But what I'm really doing is I'm really someone who's just not afraid to pursue my interests and abandon them if they don't work for me. It's not like I'm going to start a company and leave all my employees. I'll give it my all just like I did with my first company. But what's true is that I'm also willing to keep following that, you know? Yeah, well, you're calibrating. Just like you said with Facebook ads, you start somewhere and then you keep tweaking until you hit the sweet spot. You don't get attached to one version and say, well, this one looks the best or this slogan is my favorite. You pick the one that works, that resonates. And the same goes for life. You try things on. You take some leaps, and as you do, you learn new information. People give a bad rap to changing your mind, but there is power in changing your mind. It shows that you're really open to whatever new information comes your way. Just because you said yes to something once doesn't mean you have to stick to it forever. You might learn that you don't actually like it, or you might grow from the opportunity and then be ready for something else. The more open you are, the more you'll actually be able to feel the signs from the universe and the more you'll feel guided. And that's where your values come in because your values are like that through line that help you feel fulfilled and help you feel like you're on the right track, even if you are switching from one thing to the next. Mm -hmm. It's so true. It kind of reminds me what you're saying of Byron Katie. She wrote the book, Loving What Is. And her big thing is, I love you until I don't. <laughs> it's true until it's not. And to speak like that and to look at life like that is to honor our human experience as individuals who are constantly growing, changing, and wanting new things. And to love ourselves enough not to box ourselves or commit ourselves into things that we don't actually know who we're going to be later, if we're growers especially, which your audience must be listening to the show. You're such a grower, Melissa, that everyone here who's listening most likely isn't going to be thinking the same thoughts this time next year. And I don't blame them. I don't want to be the same Ashley Stahl at 31 as I am at Ashley Stahl at 35. I want to be different. And as is the case with marriage and even business partnerships, you're not just marrying a guy who's 30 years old. You're marrying someone who eventually is going to be a dad and you're not going to know who he is until he's a dad. If you're going to have kids, you're marrying someone who eventually is going to start some sort of business and be an entrepreneur. And you don't really know what that version of them is either. It's the same case with business and creation. We're creating something, we marry ourselves to it, and maybe it evolves because we do. I think sometimes we get so attached to things because we assume that if we made a decision or if we reacted in a certain way, that there had to be a logical reason for it. But a lot of times there's just not. So there is power in understanding that and understanding what it means to be human. Because what it means is that a lot of what we do are just these chemical reactions. Our brain is a record of our past. So our reactions are actually just 
hardwired in our brains based on things that we've gone through before, experiences that we've had. And then we seek to validate those reactions even more. So we look for things from our environment that reaffirms our beliefs of who we think that we are. And this is the perfect formula to creating a future that looks exactly like our past. But if we want to move beyond our past and move beyond who we have been, we need to consciously make choices that don't feel familiar. We need to zoom out from our current state and be the observer of our emotions instead of attaching to them. We've all heard, let go of that which no longer serves you. But the process of that is first to bring awareness, then to detach yourself, and then You have to step into the unknown. You have to make an unfamiliar decision and you have to know that you might feel uneasy while you're doing it, but that's how you make room for who you want to become. It's what lies in that unknown. Yeah, definitely. And I think far too often we constrict ourselves by putting time limits or wanting to know the answers now and being in the unknown. When I got a master's in spiritual psychology, they called it the divine unknown And it is. And I think we've read a lot of quotes that say life is only as successful as your conversations that you're uncomfortable in, or you're only as successful as your willingness to fail. I think we're only as successful as we are willing to regulate our nervous system. And that's what really life is about is being able to step into these moments where our body is in panic and learning and training ourselves to hold that and to be able to keep moving forward. My current author obsession right now is Dr. Joe Dispenza. And he said, memory without the emotional charge is called wisdom. So I love what you said about learning to control our nervous system. Our emotions are what attach us to these outcomes. But if we can become the observer, that's what actually opens up every possibility to us because we're no longer beholden to our past experiences. He says, that's what allows us to become limitless. So in your situation, in order to create all the wealth that you did, you had to let go of your past self, but then you had to let go again to get through that loss. So having gone through all of those stages of wealth and then back again, how did your beliefs about money change? And what did you have to do to strengthen yourself to bounce back? Such a great question. Well, I mean, money is neutral, right? We've all heard that. And it's just really how you hold money within yourself. So anybody right now can listening can figure out what they think about money and what they're holding subconsciously alone. If I say to someone who's listening, fill in the blank with your gut reaction. What is the first word you think right now when I say money is blank? Fill in the blank right now. First word. Maybe some people are going to say amazing, but a lot of people who listen in right now, they're going to say money is greedy. Money is hard. Money is lonely. Money is difficult to make. People have different beliefs about it. But to me, money is neutral and it's really just how you hold it. I used to have a belief that money would kill me or that money is something you lose. And I've been working on that so much. One exercise I did for the longest time that I think I I talked about recently on a podcast was about how every single morning I would write from the voice of my beliefs about money. I would write the part of me that was in scarcity, the part of me that thought I was going to lose it all. So every morning in my journal for about a month, I wrote, I'm going to lose it all. Everything's going to be gone. I can't keep it. Money's going to kill me. This is going to take everything away from me. When I was going through all my losses, 
And that was all part of crying all of my tears and saying everything I had to say to face the facts of the loss that I was enduring. And yeah, I can look at you now and say I've bounced back, but it's this exercise that I've carried with me. And when I look at everything I write, usually after about 10 minutes of freeform journaling, that's when the subconscious material comes out. And so it was after that that I was able to see so many different beliefs come up that I didn't even realize I had. And I would forgive myself for those beliefs. I would look at them and I didn't want to reprogram them back in my brain because in a lot of ways, I felt like I was releasing them right there on the paper and I didn't want to read all of it. But what I would do is notice which ones really hurt my heart, like which things I wrote down with freeform writing in my fear that felt really real to me. I would put my hand over my heart like I was doing the Pledge of Allegiance almost and I would say, I forgive myself for buying into the belief that I am going to lose it all. The truth is I'm capable. I'm surrounded by people who can help me and I'm going to create it all. That's beautiful. Our lives reflect our worth. So look around right now. What is your life like? How do the people around you treat you? Are you satisfied with your job? Do you feel love and support? Your life, the things that you're seeing right now, those things are a reflection of your beliefs about yourself. And it comes back to worthiness and what you think you deserve. It's interesting because if you choose a path like you and I of wanting to help people on a larger scale, you have to make yourself vulnerable. Suddenly we're just more visible. We're sharing our story with the world. We're opening ourselves up to feedback, whether we want that feedback or not. And you have openly shared about haters. But even if you're not in the public eye, whether it's social media or judgy coworker or just someone we happen to rub the wrong way, most of us have dealt with haters in some form. So how do you deal with haters in a way that doesn't affect your self-worth? If anybody listening right now feels like they're only as happy as their next business deal, they're only as happy as the job they have, then in some way or another, their worthiness and joy is tied to their work or their bank account. And in my case, When I really took a look at the haters, what it was triggering inside of me was the belief that I'm going to lose it all, that I had so deeply entwined in myself since I was a little kid. And so for me, it wasn't so much about the haters as much as, of course, because it's not about the issue. It's how you relate to the issue, right? Like it's not an issue unless you're relating to it like it is one. And that's why you see people who are poor and happy. And then you see people who are rich and not like there's something about how they're relating to money that is making them different. And in my case, I had to find a balance between reading what they had to say because I was curious and forgiving myself for whatever I believed about myself. And the biggest thing I watched out for was what do I agree with them on? Because that hurt the most is if they called me out on something I agreed with. In my webinar, I sell and I, I opened it up for 15 minutes until for them to join me at a discounted rate. And they're like, God, wait for her to corner us into having to buy something, giving us only 15 minutes. She's like a used car salesman or something like that. That hurt me because I agreed with them. I was like, yeah, I really don't like having to sell something with this kind of urgency. And that just upped my game. And and that's what I've learned about haters is they're really just upping your game. They're really just bringing out all of the beliefs you have about yourself as well and asking you to do inventory on yourself and figure out where you're in agreement with them and where you can forgive yourself for the areas that you're having a misunderstanding 
about yourself, about your power, about your worthiness, about your gifts. And so thanks to them, I was able to really step into that. Earlier last year, I did a video shoot for Amazon and Refinery29, and it went viral. The videos got a couple million views. And that was really hard because there were hundreds of comments on there. And a lot of the comments were about my beauty. They would say, like, this girl creeps me out. Like, that color lipstick makes her look like a witch. Like, this is the kind of girl that I see in my nightmares. So... Oddly, I've done a lot of beliefs work around my money and around my success and around my worthiness in business, but I'm still working on my beliefs around my body image, around my beauty, especially because I'm recently single. Like I was with a guy for five years and he proposed and I said no. Well, I said yes and then called off our wedding. So, I mean, kind of being on my own again for the first time after years of being with somebody has been bringing up like, am I pretty enough? Am I funny enough? Am I interesting enough? And I've been working on forgiving myself for those beliefs now too. So like I said, new level, new devil, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's like the name of your podcast, U-Turn. We expect maybe one turn in life or here and there, but I think some of the best lives are a constant series of U-Turns. It's more like a spiral in a general forward direction. I know. I always tell people, I'm like, oh my God, so many U-turns. I don't even know if I'm in this. I'm probably going to end up in the same spot by the end. Like, (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom and just such an amazing conversation. I feel like I could talk to you all day. So for listeners who feel the same, where's the best place to connect online? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so inspired by you, Melissa, and I'm really grateful that we know each other and that you're making this impact. As far as I go, you guys can find my podcast on the podcast app on Stitcher. It's called U-Turn Podcast. It's two words, Y-O-U and T-U-R-N. Every single week, we have somebody on mindset, love, and work. And at the end of every episode, I give coaching insights for you to implement whatever that conversation was into actionable bite-sized homeworks into your real life. And then otherwise, I'm writing my book called U-Turn, and I'm running Cake Publishing over at cakepublishing.com all about how to get ghostwriters, copywriters, or publicists to support people in their business. And I'm still mentoring women a few times a year on their career or on their business over at ashleyinternational.com. So there's all the places you can find me. (laughs) All of the links and books mentioned in this episode are at mindlove.com slash 051. This conversation made my week. I love talking to Ashley. I just feel so stimulated and inspired every time we have conversations. And you know, she's one of those people that I feel like I made room for. And suddenly I'm making more friends like her and having more conversations like those. And it's amazing. The more open you are and the less you attach yourself to things, the more you make room for something greater. It's our egos that attach and identify with things, but our souls, our essence, wants to float free from experience to experience without that attachment. Our attachments are like leashes anchoring us to matter, but the more we let go, the more freedom we have. That's how we become limitless. If you love this show, you can support it by supporting our sponsors. Again, I only partner with brands that I really do love and fully believe in. If you're enjoying Mind Love, please tell a friend or a family member or a coworker about it. And don't forget to subscribe on CastBox or Apple Podcasts and rate and review on Apple Podcasts. 
Also, for some extra inspiration between episodes, don't forget to sign up for the Morning Mind Love at mindlove.com or text MORNING to 444-999 or visit me on social media at mindlovepodcast. Thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.